Good evening, everybody. It's Chris Stott here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta. Uh, tonight, I am hosting this webinar on behalf of the Alberta Prosperity Project uh, with someone who you may or may not know. Her name is Michelle Sterling, and she is with Friends of Science. Um, this is actually part two of a series. The, the first one was uh, Climate Change and Net Zero Health. Uh, this one is uh, Tar Sands Tipping Point with CBC. So. Um, I guess I'm going to let you introduce yourself, uh, Michelle, because I've, I've watched a few of your videos, but uh, I think you do a much better job than, than I would. Well, <clears throat> thanks very much, Chris, and thanks to Alberta Prosperity for having me on the show. Um, uh, my background is mostly in advertising, marketing, filmmaking. I worked at Alberta Environment for a short time in 2005. That was the year that the Sierra Club gave Alberta an F and they gave Ontario a B plus. And that's when I started thinking, there's something funny going on, but I didn't quite know what it was. And uh, so I've spent about the past decade actually tracking the tar sands campaign. And uh, that's what my talk will be about tonight. And I, I don't think most people know how big a deal this really was and is. So I hope to enlighten you some with my research and some with research that we've done through Friends of Science Society with Robert Lyman. And uh, all the material we got was from public records. Uh, we didn't have the opportunity of a forensic audit like the Alberta Inquiry did, but um, we were happy to see the Alberta Inquiry and Deloitte Forensic more or less confirmed our um, findings. So uh, I'm very happy to be here and talk with you about it tonight. And uh, thanks for hosting the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So this is right up my alley. Uh, I've actually, I moved to Alberta in 2000 to, to be prosperous in the energy industry here and, and prosperous I was. Uh, but I, I felt firsthand the impacts of these, these largely foreign funded attacks on our energy industry. I mean, I've, I've been in situations where I was doing great in the energy industry and I could do kind of whatever I want, go on vacations, give a, my kids nice things. And I've been in situations where I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to afford to pay for my, uh, uh, my house, you know, so I've, I, I've been through this. So this is something very near and dear to me. And for any of you out there who are wondering why the Alberta Prosperity Project is hosting events like this, talking about our energy industry, uh, it, it's quite simple. Uh, Alberta Prosperity Project we want Alberta to be prosperous. That's what the name is about. This project is to ensure that Alberta has a prosperous future uh, moving forward. So one of the things, actually the thing that has made Alberta the most prosperous province in the country is our energy industry. So uh, at, the Alberta, at the Alberta Prosperity Project, we understand that um, this is a core conversation not only for the people of Alberta, but for the people of Canada who also depend on Alberta's energy industry. So that's in a, in, in a nutshell, that's why we're doing this because in, 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 the, in the quest for prosperity, it's important to find the truths around it. So we have conversations with uh, people like Michelle who are very knowledgeable on these subjects. And hopefully this will give you an idea, maybe some tools, to use in your conversations with uh, with other Albertans uh, as to how we can change the conversation from Alberta's the embarrassing cousin of Canada to 
Alberta is a global leader in, in clean, ethical energy, and we should be uh, we should be rejoicing for it. So, uh, yes, th thank you, Michelle, for the work that you've been doing. Um, I know there's a, a lot of folks like me who who make their living or made their living in the energy industry, and they're they're very grateful that there are people like you speaking out. So, you mentioned that you you kind of had a, a aha, like what's going on here moment. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? What, what was your feelings on this kind of prior to that? Well, you know, years ago, I knew nothing about the energy industry at all. I had no idea how life was powered at all. And uh, I even did a, a corny little five-minute play that was condemning uh, energy development years and years ago. And I mean, it's embarrassing to me now because I realize how ignorant I was then. Energy illiterate, I call it today. Um, when I worked at Alberta Environment, uh, I was astonished that the government didn't want to fight back against the Sierra Club at the time. And you have to remember that back in 2005, the tar sands campaign was very low profile. There were all these kind of incremental attacks happening, but but it, they seemed to be from small groups. Nobody knew at the time that there was a huge uh, funding behind them. And, um, you know, in our department, we had a big conversation about what we should do. And half of us felt we should fight back and say something because Alberta has a terrific track record. You know, we were the first province to have an environment minister. That was Ralph Klein and an environment ministry. We are the first, oh, nice kitty. Uh, we were the first province to have a comprehensive climate and uh, environment legislation that was developed in 2002 and passed in 2003. We were the first jurisdiction in North America to have a GHG tax, and that was basically only on uh, large emitters. So not the public, just the big companies. And probably that was more for trade purposes because sometimes in international markets you have to, you know, play along in order to participate. But it didn't touch the ordinary people. Um, so uh, my real epiphany came when years after working at Alberta Environment, I was going to sit down and watch a CBC documentary called The Tipping Point, Age of the Oil Sands. And... It was going to be hosted by David Suzuki. And like most Canadians, I'd grown up with him. And he was kind of an idol around our house. My mom loved his nature shows. I'd seen, you know, hundreds of hours of them as a kid. Um, and uh, so there'd been a lot of rattling in the woods about the oil sands. A couple of uh, papers had come out in the fall really denigrating the oil sands. And I thought, you know, that's odd because it's so contrary to everything that I learned when I was at Alberta Environment. And when I was at Alberta Environment, I often had to talk with field people about the oil sands because there were lots of questions about them. And I have to say, they were always very fair. You know, it wasn't like this was a department like rah, rah, hey, hey, everything's perfect. You know, they say, yes, the, tail sand, the tailings ponds are big, they're complex, and it's challenging to deal with them. But here's what we think is good and here's what we think is going in the right direction and these they also said that all the companies were very compliant so they they always felt that there was no reason to fight back because the companies you know there's lots of good in place and the companies were compliant but 
when I sat down that night and I watched the tipping point, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. It, it was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. And because I'd worked in film and television, because I'd worked in advertising, and because I'd worked at Alberta Environment, those three things converged. And I knew that night that people would start to hate Alberta because of that documentary. And that's exactly what happened. So I started writing letters to the CRTC, to the CBC, to the head of CBC, to the RCMP, to anybody I could think of, to Alberta Environment, anyone I could think of. I started sending them letters and saying, you have to do a rebuttal documentary. You know, you have to give the other side a fair chance. And it didn't happen. <laughs> so anyway, my talk tonight is based partly on my book of letters, which I, I decided not to read any of them because if you want to read them, you can get the, the Kindle version, but uh, you don't need to hear me ranting away at people. Um, you need to understand the broader scope tonight. But that was my turning point. That's when I realized, wow, there is something bad out there. It's a very well-networked group of people. At that time, I didn't know who they were or what they were really up to. But there were just way too many coincidences and way too many smears in this documentary for me. So, Yeah, and that's something I noticed over the last, well, I guess ever since I've been in Alberta. A lot of times when we see these types of things come out, it, it's almost as if, no, it is, it is as if they, they're using videos and still pictures and, and, and telling stories that aren't necessarily factual or they don't contain facts at all, but they, they cause somebody to have an emotional response about this subject. And mm -hmm. then having this emotional response, um, they're forming opinions based on that rather than on the facts. Like for instance, we've all seen the picture of the, you know, the oil covered pond, right? Where, oh, there was an oil spill here and this duck has oil on it. It sucks. It's terrible, it, but it happens. And, and they don't tell the bigger picture, like what was done to clean it up, the steps that were, the steps that were um, put in place to prevent it from happening again, how we do a better job of this in Alberta than anywhere else in the world. It's very, very one-sided. And it's almost, it seems to me, um, that facts aren't even important. Even, even men like Neil Young, you know, they, they come up to Alberta and they fly over Fort Mac and he says, it looks like Hiroshima. It's so bad. It looks like Hiroshima. And people actually believe it because that's a very emotional thing to say, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, as you say, there's, there's no context. You know, one of the facts might be true. It's a fact that about 2,000 ducks were flying. It was the storm. They landed on the tailings pond and, you know, they normally have like these kind of sound cannons to scare them off or scarecrows. But because of the conditions, they landed there. They all got oil covered. Most of them died. I don't know what, 2,500 ducks. Well, you know how many ducks are killed every year by duck hunters in North America? 16 million. <laughs> so no one says a word about that, right? So yeah. just for context, once you have that context, you go, oh, well, it's sad and bad that they died. But honestly, 2,000 versus 16 million? Come on. Um, so 
anyway, so those are some of the things that I put in my in my book and in my rebuttals to CBC. I put in all that context. I went to the Royal Society of Canada's report and I found all their findings and I followed the trail back to the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences reports. And I found that these reports were not peer reviewed in the normal method. They were contributed. So they were what you call PAL reviewed. But I'll talk about that a bit more in my PowerPoint presentation. Sure. So in Alberta, uh, one of the things that the UCP government campaigned on was dealing with this misinformation campaign that's vilifying Alberta's energy industry. And uh, you know, coincidentally, I actually just ignored a call from the premier who is very on side with defending Alberta's energy industry as well. So I guess I'll have to call it back later. But it, it, it boggles my mind. Um, you mentioned context and perspective. So just thinking about those 2,000 or, or 2,500 ducks uh, that, that died in the tailings pond, people, again, that's emotional. Oh, those poor ducks, they died. Well, we kill and eat 16 million of them a year. That's a very, very big number. Um, and we're getting something from that. They're sustaining us. Every now and then we have something happen in energy or agriculture or whatever, and animals die or there's something bad that happens. But if you put it in the context of how many people, um, how many people's lives are enriched or are able to prosper, how many lives are saved as a result of that industry where we have this incident happen, all of a sudden the, the scales of, uh, what would you call it? The scales of. Uh, the balance of, uh, of the importance changes. Yeah, like the scales of, of public perception of public justice, they weigh very, very heavily on like in favor of, of the energy industry. Um, so so that's something I'm hoping that we see more of in the in the upcoming months is the the information getting out there like from folks like you who are are, are breaking down this narrative that everything Alberta does that has anything to do with oil or gas is evil. And the, the reality is what we do enriches the lives of every person on the globe in one way or another, right? So um, is that kind of, is that kind of uh, what's in your PowerPoint that you're going to show this, this evening? Um, yeah, that's part of it. And also the bigger picture is that Alberta has really been the poster child for the push for renewables and cap and trade worldwide. What could make renewables, which are very unreliable, very expensive, and really useless except for generating uh, renewable energy certificates, what could make them look like a good deal uh, unless you compare them to something that looks ghastly and you call it dirty? And of course, the mining, the surface mining of the oil sands was the perfect image to contrast that with renewable energy and say, this oil is dirty, coal is dirty, um, uh, gas is dirty, but this wind is clean, it's beautiful, this solar panel is beautiful, these are clean and they're free. There's, but nobody ever says, hey, wait a minute, these guys are made from those guys. So how can this be clean and, and beautiful and free if it's made from oil, gas, and coal, right? But it was a perfect marketing scheme. So I see a lot of the climate uh, processes as really a very sophisticated marketing scheme. 
And we even have a report on that. Friends of Science has a report on that, uh, which uh, I'll show you later in the evening as well. So, uh, so it's, it's even bigger than just Alberta and Canada, in my view. It's international. I, I agree. And the, the whole thing is, is very convoluted. So that, that's something that uh, our friend Alex Epstein, he mentions when he speaks as well. You know, the, the, the renewable idea, uh, the, the green idea, wind, solar, tidal generators, the whole nine yards, um, they're, they're great ideas, but they're ideas. And the way, I, the way I see this and what he says is that unless you can replace our current source of sustenance with something that's equally as good, equally uh, efficient, then what you're trying to substitute with it, it it's not a replacement at all. Mm-hmm. Especially considering that, as you said, uh, all of those things are heavily reliant on the industry they're trying to, to get rid of. So why is it that the conversation about Alberta oil is always a negative one and the conversation about the green scheme or the green scam, as I call it, that always is spun in a positive way. And what I've discovered is that if you you look at who's benefiting in, with either scenario, Alberta energy, Albertans benefit. We benefit greatly. And so does the rest of the country. With the, with the green initiatives, the people that benefit are those who um, receive subsidies and grants, et cetera, from the government money from our pockets to shift into their pockets because they're pushing a fairy tale ideology that can't replace what they're trying to vilify. So what would you, what would you say about that? Why, why do you think that uh, they were, they're able to push this narrative um, and promote something that's not sustainable? Well, the first answer is billions of dollars. That's why billions uh-huh. and billions of dollars. So just so you know, our organization, we're in our 20th year. We operate on about $150,000 a year. And I'm going to show you tonight organizations that operate on millions of dollars a year. Organizations that have more money than federal political parties, that are charities that are running off your tax subsidies, whether you like it or not, and that are also funded by government. And if you go behind the scenes, you'll find in many cases, most of the public. Uh, pension funds in the world are associated with a group called the UNPRI, and they are all climate obsessed, and their fiduciary guru is Al Gore, and they're all hung up on ESG. They are about a thousand institutional investors, and they sit on about $90 trillion in assets. So you can see that if these are investors, say, in an oil sands company, They'll walk in and say, you know what, we think that you're not green enough and that's going to do damage to us in the market. So you should have some wind and solar farms. Now, if you're an engineer and a CEO of a company like that, practically, you probably know, like, that's a dumb idea. They're low density (laughs) and they're not going to do anything for the people. And so if you're the investors, you can say, well, you know, if you do this, we'll look green, you'll get a bonus. And Um, people will love the company again. And if you don't, well, there's not many jobs for CEOs. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty simple. So, um, and that's effectively what's happened. Uh, You can see how these institutional investors are now manipulating the market through things like ESG and through this financial pressure, um, 
where they've got actually oil and gas companies investing in green, uh, which will be subsidized by taxpayers, you know, just to look good and to get the subsidies. And then they can use those renewable energy credits and trade them on international markets. But ultimately, it's the little person at the bottom that's, you know, their pocket is being picked for all this. And uh that's creating also an energy crisis because, of course, the green movement has driven off investment in fossil fuels. And this is why we have an energy crisis now. And again, people don't understand that to de develop oil and gas production, you need you know, 10, 20, 30 year horizons. So the investment horizons are very long. You need stable government, you need stable policies, and you can't have um, these crazy green cap and trade policies popping up and scaring off your investors, you know, and, and ruining your business model. So we're going to be in trouble for a long time because of the green movement, the climate movement. So would it be, would it be too extreme of a thing to say that if we continue down this path, promoting unsustainable energy industries and continuing to vilify our own industries made in Alberta industries, um, that eventually reality is going to snap back and slap us squarely in the face. Well, I think and I hope that there are enough savvy people in Alberta that that won't be as bad as it could be, but it will be bad and it already is. I mean, um, people don't realize that we are tied up in these power purchase agreements with a lot of the big renewable operations in Alberta right now. And these will be costing Albertans a fortune. On the surface, it looks like, oh, we're bringing in business. But on the, in, the, in reality, we're helping finance Amazon, <laughs> you know, one of the richest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. So we've got a couple of reports like that on our website, the true cost of wind and solar for Alberta and um, um, what you really need to know about renewables that the Pembina Institute won't tell you and uh, in the dark on renewables. So we've got quite a few of them that people can go through. So let's, uh, let's, let's take it back to the oil sands. Um, now I know the tar sands was a term coined because tar looks dirty and it seems dirty and, and, and they're, they're called that, but they're specifically not tar. Um, looking at that specific industry, where, like, what, what do Albertans do? What, what do we have to do to, to get the truth out about that so that the world um, can get on board our, our basically the, the biggest oil cleanup that's ever been done in the world? Where, where, where do we go? What do we do here? Well, it's quite difficult. I mean, uh, because of all the money involved, and you'll see that. But I think one of the most important things is what I'm going to do tonight is to show you that money and show you where that influence comes from. Because once you see that, uh, you know, I've, that's been my experience on Twitter. Anyway, once people see how much money is being pumped into the climate green agenda, uh, they're astounded. And they, they, most people realize, wait a minute, these people aren't making anything. They're not doing anything. They're not creating an economy. They are taking from the economy. And, um, you know, I'd say back in the 70s, environmental groups probably had a good role in the world because there was a lot of mess and they helped clean it up. But since the 1980s, I'd say that they've just become like a little money-making choo-choo train and, um, you know, always finding and creating a cause 
that they could hammer something about. And so with the oil sands, for a long time, they were actually on the environmental bandwagon. Oh, you know, you have to improve uh, the tailings ponds, you have to improve this process, the air emissions are not good enough, we want the emissions to be uh, drastically improved. So the oil sands did that. All those companies complied and they improved all the, and so did Alberta, they improved all the regulations and all the uh, activity. And finally, you know, there really wasn't much more that the um, ENGOs could complain about. So they moved into climate because then now you can make it global, right? Like if it's environmental, it's in your backyard. If you have a messy uh, wetland in your backyard that somebody dumped a bunch of old garbage in one time, well, that's in your backyard. That doesn't affect people in China or in India or Africa or England. But if you can say climate change, wow, you've got a carbon bomb up there, you know, north of Edmonton and Fort Mac, which is, that's what uh, James Hansen framed it as, a carbon bomb. Well, now you've got every climate activist in the world going, oh my God, we hate Alberta, <laughs> right? So we have to turn that part of the narrative around. We also have to show people that climate science has been exaggerated for decades. And it's mostly based on faulty climate models. That's where the climate emergency comes from. But I'm, you know, I'm not really going to address much of the climate science tonight. That's a whole conversation by itself. Mm -hmm. But again, in Alberta, we have the perfect example of what climate change is. Go to the Royal Tyrell Museum. Go down to Okotoks and stand by that big rock. That big rock came all the way from Jasper, 400 kilometers. So, you know, where did all that ice go? Well, Calgary used to be under two miles of ice. Where did it go? There were no SUVs. So, you know, we have the evidence actually right here in the province to argue against the catastrophe narrative. And of course, again, that doesn't mean that humans don't affect climate. We do. But not catastrophically so and our impact in terms of the atmospheric concentration is nominal in terms of environment it depends where you live in alberta we have very good environmental regulations and uh, very good performance here in canada in general same thing uh, we have a good report on our website on our blog called canada's amazing success story untold success story on the environment by robert lyman and it's great, but you never hear it in the press. But I'll show you why that later as well. <laughs> so a, a question a question comes to mind. What are we willing to sacrifice in the pursuit of uh, what may or may not be largely uh, human impact? And, you know, in order to change the climate by a margin that is mostly insignificant, I I think this whole thing needs to be relooked at. So, on that note, I'm very interested to see where's the money going. What's okay. happening? Well, let me show you. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to start sharing my screen here. Okay. So um, <clears throat> this is my little book that I have on. Uh, uh, Amazon Kindle, my tar sands tipping point with CBC, how a world-class industry was razzed by unelected, unaccountable eco-activists who were funded by offshore foundations and how the oil sands was denigrated and delegitimized by Mother Corp.
at CBC with your tax dollars. So this is from Charles Mayer's Treaty Diary in 1899, and he was traveling through the Fort McMurray region, and he's talking about the Athabasca River, and he said, the tar, whatever it may be otherwise, is a fuel and burned in our campfires like coal, that this region is stored with a substance of great economic value is beyond all doubt, and when the hour of development comes, it will, I believe, prove to be one of the wonders of northern Canada. We were all deeply impressed by this scene of nature's chemistry and realized what a vast storehouse of not only hidden but exposed resources we possess in this enormous country. What is unseen can only be conjectured, but what is seen would make any region famous. And of course, that's what happened. So as I mentioned, I sat down in January of 2011 to watch The Tipping Point, and I was positive that David Suzuki would set the record straight. <clears throat> because in the fall, a couple of uh, reports had come out in the PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, that appeared to make the oil sands look like <clears throat> a terrible toxic wasteland. Uh, and I was astonished at how in that uh, almost two hour documentary, the oil sands was stripped of its reputation and denigrated and um, I knew the end was nigh for Alberta. And this uh, documentary was co-produced with uh, Clearwater Productions out of Edmonton. And I don't really blame the producers themselves because, you know, they're independent producers. They have a right to do whatever they want. But CBC is working with taxpayers' money, and it should have been properly vetted, and I don't think that it was. So they went on to release The Tipping Point as a... Um, theatrical release, a documentary that played in theaters all around the world. And CBC ran this documentary on their website 24-7 for a couple of years. So you can imagine the impact that had. And here's what uh, Suzuki had to say. One of the most powerful organizations in the U.S. is the Natural Resources Defense Council, with a million members and supporters like Robert Redford and Leo DiCaprio. They are a force to be reckoned with. Well, that uh, probably should have been a warning to us, but nobody understood what that meant. And... In watching the documentary, as we just discussed, Chris and I, um, how the context was missing. So let me just say how it could have been. So picture this, the wise-looking grandfatherly David Suzuki opens the tipping point, age of the oil sands, saying, this is the nature of things. Alberta's controversial oil sands are the largest source of imported oil to the U.S. But as the cost to the environment is becoming clearer, could new scientific evidence trigger a tipping point for the oil sands? What exactly are Alberta oil sands doing to surrounding rivers and lakes? Two years ago, we produced Tipping Point, which followed scientists who produced evidence of industrial pollution, evidence that couldn't be ignored. Now, then what if he added? I'm David Suzuki. The charitable foundation in my name has received millions of dollars of offshore funding, a great deal of it from the Tides Foundation of the U.S., which appears to be running an anti-oil sands campaign against Canada 
and which is funding some 36 different environmental, non-governmental organizations and charities in Canada, apparently to try and shut down the oil sands, at least according to this 2008 tar sands strategy document. The research of the scientists Schindler and Kelly that you will see in this documentary was also funded by Tides, and the Aboriginal bands in this documentary have received funding from Tides and from the Offshore Cooperative Bank of the UK, all to oppose oil sands development. In fact, most of the people we interview in this program have received funding from Tides Canada or Tides of the US. They all oppose oil sands development. Well, we do talk with one oil sands expert. We interviewed him for two hours. You'll hear him speak for just one minute and five seconds in this recut 44-minute show because we think his 32 years of oil sands experience could be summarized in that time. Now, with that context, would that have changed how would that have changed how Canadians and people around the world saw the oil sands and this story? I think so. Very likely. And there was missing context. So when the video moves on to interview Aboriginal people talking about the members of the family who have, sadly, died of cancer, if David Suzuki had said, according to an Alberta health study of the region, the Aboriginal people in this area have higher precursors for cancer, including diabetes, lupus, substance abuse issues, smoking, poor nutrition, obesity, and according to the American Cancer Society, bile duct cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, is more common in the ethnic groups of Native Americans and Asians. Would viewers have had a more balanced information about this community? And again, this is not pejorative. They live in a place where it's hard to get food. It's very expensive to get fresh food in. So um, there are health problems there that are related to just their isolation. And then when the Aboriginal people on camera talked about the river, pollutants, and living on Lake Athabasca, should Suzuki have mentioned that there are several upstream pulp and paper mills which have a license to put processed water into the river? The uh, oil sands do not have such a license. That's why those tailings ponds are there. And that there are many old uranium mines that are right on the shores of Lake Athabasca. In fact, many people in the Fort Chipewyan community and region used to work in those mines, and some still do. Should Suzuki have mentioned that many of the old uranium tailings are unfenced, both Aboriginal hunters can roam there and wildlife can graze there at will. And some old uranium tailings sit right on the edge of the lake. And again, what's not mentioned in the documentary is that the river runs right through the oil sands. And if you read the Charles Mayer Treaty Diary that I opened with, you'll find um, quite a, an amazing discussion as they're rafting down the river or canoeing down the river and how he sees these great cliffs of, of tar collapsing into the river uh, and how it smelled like an old ship. So, that's how it's been since uh, time immemorial. So the Royal Society of Canada reviewed the Schindler-Kelly work and found that the correlation to cancer was not supported by the evidence. They found that though some heavy metals were elevated, river water was still well within Canadian water drinking guidelines of which you can drink 
1.7 liters a day for 70 years with no expected problems. They also found it would be difficult to tell where any heavy metals were coming from for the simple reason that the Athabasca River runs right through the oil sands naturally and has great chunks of oil sand naturally falling into it all the time. We should clean that up. Yeah. Aren't we doing that? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, what is the CBC mandate? Well, under the Broadcasting Act, Section 3.1.D, it's to serve and safeguard, enrich and strengthen the cultural, political, social, and economic fabric of Canada. So I'd have to say the tipping point is a great big fail on all those points. And here is Don Thompson, who was then president of the Oil Sands Developers Group. This is the man that the filmmakers interviewed for two hours, and he got a couple of minutes on camera in the show. So he points out here that even in the heart of the recession of 2008, the oil sands was spinning something on the order of $20 billion into the Canadian economy. At that level, you will have employment in Canada dependent on the order of about 450,000 people. The oil sands are the key to the Canadian economy. Now, this is a screenshot of one of the Schindler-Kelly papers, and you can see here um, the title is Oil Sands Development Contributes Polycyclic Aromatic Compounds to the Athabasca River and its Tributaries. Okay, Uh, these things also exist in cities, by the way, and run off into urban rivers just from urban activity. (laughs) But anyway, you'll notice here that this was contributed by David Schindler. And uh, sadly, I am speaking now uh, of Dr. David Schindler. He did pass away recently, so he is not here to defend himself on this. But uh, what I'm saying is taken from the PNAS. So the PNAS is the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's a U.S. uh, journal and organization. And uh, in order to do a contributed article, you have to be a member of the NAS. And Dr. Schindler had both US and Canadian citizenship. He also had relevant background because he had worked on um, various uh, issues related to lake pollution in his career. And he is uh, and was a highly esteemed scholar. But what I'm trying to get at here is whether there were conflicts of interest and whether or not these papers were peer-reviewed in the way that most people think peer review means. And again, this one is the second paper that was published. Oil sands development contributes elements toxic at low concentrations to the Athabasca River and its tributaries. So these two papers really started um, the public outcry against the oil sands, and that was amplified by those 36 or so environmental groups, many of which are charities and many of which um, were also funded by tides in some way. And again, this was a contributed article. Well, what is that relevant? Why is that relevant? Well, first of all, no conflicts of interest. Well, we find in the acknowledgements that tides and the Walter and Duncan Gordon Foundations funded the work. So. Um, I looked up the 
Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and looked into their editorial guidelines. And there's a difference between a direct submission and a contributed submission. And the difference is that a direct submission goes through the traditional peer review process, which at the time required three appropriate editorial board members, three National Academy of Sciences members who are expert in the paper's scientific area, and five qualified reviewers. So that's a true peer-reviewed paper. These are submitted blind to the reviewers, so nobody knows who wrote it. And they just assess it based on the actual science in the paper. But contributed articles are something completely different. These are, by contrast, in a category that allows four submissions a year. Um, the author must confirm that they were part of the design but they don't actually have to do any of the research. And then they can choose two qualified researchers to review it. So that's commonly known as PAL review, where you get a friend who probably likes your work as well uh, and is qualified to review it. But it's not the same as a, a direct submission peer review paper, is it? And then how can it be that Tides is listed as a funder and yet, it's, it, at the time even, it was openly anti-oil sands. And uh, this woman also appears in the show. Her name is Susan Casey Lefkowitz. She's the director of international programs for the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is an American uh, ENGO. And she says this in the show. This is a verbatim quote. What would the different pieces be of a tar sands campaign? The U.S. is the main market. So you go after the market. You go after the market in terms of individual consumers, corporate consumers, investors, policy, infrastructure, and at the regulatory level in Ottawa in terms of climate policy and energy policy. And they've done all of that, every single one of those things. In the very beginning, I don't know if people remember this now. But in the very beginning, they started doing a campaign. It was really almost like a retail marketing campaign. Of course, you know, with my background in advertising, that's why I twig on these things. But um, I think they went after Chiquita Banana. <laughs> and they said, you know, Chiquita Banana shouldn't be using tar sands oil. And it's like, what? No, we're not, you know, because that, that suddenly created... Um, an outcry against the company. And I, they think they also did that with Walgreens. So they did that with a number of fairly large, high profile uh, companies uh, and used it to like just shred their brand. And this is a very sophisticated marketing uh, campaign in my view. And if you remember, Sapporo Berman was working then with Forest Ethics mm -hmm. and they used to get all kinds of publicity in major newspapers like the New York Times and Washington Post and all these papers. How did this little story out of Canada get there? Well, one of the lead people in uh, forest ethics is a former ad agency guy and used to work um, on Ralph Nader campaigns. So obviously someone with all those media connections. So uh, we didn't know any of this at the time, but obviously, um, you know, Alberta was already at a loss because Alberta didn't have that kind of agency connection to anywhere in the world, and they would never fight those kind of campaigns that way. You can't do that with public money, but you can do it with private money. 
So the Tar Sands Campaign incorporated a network of leading U.S. and Canadian environmental groups. Um, there was a coordinated campaign structure. RBF is the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation and Hewlett Foundations were main funders. And it says here it was $7 million a year. And maybe that's what it was at the beginning. Uh, this comes from um, the Tar Sands Campaign strategy document, which I'll show you the cover for it later. You can find it online. It's not difficult. That's the other thing that's quite bizarre and unusual about this. The campaign was really quite out in the open. Um, this particular document was not, but ultimately people could have found most of this information if they were looking and thinking about it. But no one was thinking about it. <laughs> Whoever would think that there would be this kind of a trade war against Canada using these kind of elements? Like, you just never think that. I mean, everyone thinks, you know, when you think of uh, an environmental charity, like most people think, oh, that's great. They're saving the planet. You know, they're going to keep things clean for my kids and my grandkids. You never think like, wow, they're putting people out of work. You know, they're killing my industry. They destroyed my town um, because they're a charity. You know, they've got a big halo on their head just by being a charity. And it goes, so, it goes a little uh, even farther than that. So they're, they're doing these things and telling us that it's so virtuous and we're virtuous to support it, for instance. Uh, buy my tires because we don't use dirty oil. We use soy soybeans. Right. So, okay, this is great. Soybeans are so clean. We're not going to have to use oil. But we're taking farmland that's used right now for food, and we're, re we're replacing the oil with the food. Meanwhile, millions of people are starving. That's like correct. This, these things aren't virtuous. They're, they're completely nefarious. And this, I would, I would argue that this marketing campaign is... Uh, it's it's killing people. It is it's not only just taking away prosperity, but it's causing loss of life. No, it is. And this uh, coming year, the uh, UN forecasts something like 345 million people in the world are at risk of famine this year, and it will be worse next year because this year we're eating last year's crop. Um, so we're in a crisis worldwide now of an energy crisis, but that's causing a food, fuel, fertilizer crisis which will end up with famine and mostly for people in developing nations but it could hit here too certainly people will be pushed into heat or eat poverty like we've never seen here yeah, people, and and europe will be decimated completely. people starve while we grow corn to be turned into ethanol and our governments take our money out of our wallet to subsidize that process right so anyway going back to the tar sands campaign if we look at the long-term goal here, this is from that strategy document. The long-term goal of the campaign is to accelerate the shift in Canada and the U.S. toward clean energy and lower energy consumption. So you see how that clean energy thing kind of pops up from out of nowhere? Mm -hmm. um, and, excuse me, I just need to drink a little tea here. We, we believe... We believe that this can be achieved through a combination of cap and trade legislation, which is now what the feds are trying to impose, to internalize carbon costs, carbon taxes, which they've already imposed, large government investments in clean energy technology development, which they have already done, incentives for energy conservation, which are everywhere, including high 
prices of energy and rapid deceleration of deforestation. And that's going on right now too. There just was um, a documentary that the BBC and CBC did just uh, attacking the reputation of the wood pellet industry in BC. And it's definitely another coordinated campaign and obviously part of this one. And then it says, with regards to tar sands specifically, our long-term goal is to stop the production of this fuel. Like they can't be any clearer. <laughs> and here's one of the people behind it. This is Michael Marks. This is also from the CBC documentary. So this was all right in the documentary. But again, at the time, it didn't make sense. You know, people couldn't connect the dots because none of these things had happened. So, you know, you kind of watch it and go, wow, these are a bunch of wackos. Look at that. They think they're going to shut down the oil sands. Huh. <laughs> Anyhow, this guy came up with the Rethink Alberta campaign. And the whole intention of that campaign was to drive all kinds of business out of Alberta, was to destroy the reputation of our tourism industry, and to, in my opinion, to pit Albertans one against the other. Because if you happen to say, let's say you're in tourism in Banff, and they start running this Rethink Alberta campaign with billboards and uh, little pop-up ads on the website with smearing oil dripping down or ducks all covered in oil um, and saying, Rethink, go to Alberta. Well, if you're in Banff and you rely on tourism and your tourism is down, or if someone comes in and says, wow, you know, where are those oil sands? You know, are they around here? And they go, no, no, they're way up north. Why do you ask? Oh, you know, I, I hear you guys are like really filthy. It's really dirty up here. You know, then if you're that tourism operator in Alberta, you're going to start hating the people who are damaging your reputation. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was a very clever kind of uh, oblique campaign. Um, and uh, then there's this other organization called the International Funders for Indigenous People. And they had Michael Marks, the guy I just showed you, speak at one of their events. And he explained that the Rethink Alberta campaign is trying to persuade businesses to stop establishing offices in the province. So they really wanted to destroy the entire reputation of Alberta. And uh, like I said, they're they were going to have uh, flash ads on major tourism websites and Google ad buys for search terms like Alberta and tourism to direct people to their website, the Rethink Alberta website. So if you search oh, yeah. for Alberta, it would bounce you to Rethink Alberta with the dripping oil and the dead ducks and everything. Okay. And the campaign is expected to go on for several years. That's a lot of money, <laughs> you know. And we think it will have implications, not just for tourism, but also for the willingness of companies to do business there and to establish headquarters or, um, eh, or what? Something there, whatever Mark said. And then he went on to say a number of U.S. groups are backing the effort, including Rainforest Action Network, Forest Ethics, Global Community Monitor, Friends of the Earth, and in Canada, Mark said the campaign would be mostly silent supporters, suggesting that was for their protection. We're expecting a lot of backlash from Alberta, Mark said. According to Marx, the campaign's big goal is to end the expansion of the oil sands. And key to that is the blocking approval of a $7 billion pipeline under review by the U.S. State Department. And that, of course, was Keystone XL. 
Wow. Yeah. So this is from 2010. And he's reporting on activity that they've done before that. So you can see how long this has been in the works. And I didn't put it in this presentation, but corporate ethics and Michael Marks claim to have coordinated over 100 ENGOs worldwide against the Alberta oil sands. And he also has a fellow named, uh, I think it's Kenny Bruno, uh, who works with him uh, in the Indigenous arm uh, of activating Indigenous groups. So, you know, it's a very well-planned out strategy, lots of money behind it. And when I watched the show, this other weird thing happened in the middle of it. Up popped Amaris uh, Technologies. Amaris was a biofuel operation based in LA. It was funded by Vinod Kolsa, who is a um, Silicon Valley entrepreneur billionaire. And they were planning to make um, some kind of biofuel in a lab. <laughs> so, you know, the world uses um, a cubic mile of oil every year. <laughs> and they wanted to make and replace all the gasoline in North America. They thought that would be like a winning combination. Um, but uh, actually, the company was bankrupt the year after. And now they just make uh, face makeup or something like that. And they realized that scaling up was problematic. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a math problem there. Like I, I read something at one point that said that if we transitioned all our current uh, hydrocarbon based fuels to fuels like biofuels, we would use up every single acre of farmland in North America or something ridiculous like that. The number was just staggering, completely impossible. Yeah, no, it's a ludicrous notion, but they were making it in a lab with yeast. So they had these like little pickers picking um, suitable yeast and then processing it somehow. But I mean, just imagine how big that facility would have to be. And of course, you know, the, the people I've talked with, like I've talked with a few engineers over the years about the oil sands and they've said, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, I have a great idea for the oil sands. Um, it might be a great idea, but it might not scale up because they say, you know, there's so many ideas out there, but you say, okay, well, we're going to try this in the lab and in the lab, it works perfectly. Well, when you get it out into the field, where temperatures change a lot, and, you know, there's all kinds of different conditions you're dealing with, maybe it doesn't work at all. So it's a very difficult process for them to just adopt new technology and go, wow, look at that, we've got a winner here. And uh, I guess a lot of entrepreneurs feel snubbed because they feel like, well, look, I brought you a, a beautiful idea that would fix everything for you. And we sometimes hear this from environmental groups where they say, oh, you know, such and such had a, had a plan to solve this problem, but they didn't want to listen to him. But they don't realize that the scope of this technology is so big and the processes involved in some of the changes to technology take a really long time. Um, I don't know if you remember when they put that new coking tower. I think it was Suncor. I think it was around 2010 and they had to move it up the uh, QE2. They had to move it at night and they had a huge, huge moving uh, um, truck, I think from Mammoth in Edmonton. There was a, a bunch of trucks. That was a sight to see. 
Yeah, it was enormous. And they had all the Fortis people out taking down power lines so the thing could get through. Anyway, I, I guess it took about 10 years for them to design and build this thing and put it up. And I did reduce emissions. But nobody applauded, right? <laughs> so you do all that work and everyone goes, and you know what else we want you to do? So you, you can never satisfy these green groups because it's not really their goal. Their goal is to try and shut down the oil signs entirely. So we just saw that. But anyway, there's another angle, and this is inside Canada. Um, this is a coordinated group within Canada. It's called the Strathmere Group. It was put together by Marlo Reynolds, who used to be the head of the Pembina Institute, and he formed it in about 2009. Um, initially, as like, I guess, an informal kind of meeting of the minds of some of the leading environmental groups. Well, you know, nothing wrong with that. I mean, industry leaders in every industry get together here and there for meetings. But then um, there's this piece from Boothroyd Communications, which is a Canadian ad agency. And they say here that they serve the Strathmere Group, which includes Greenpeace, Pembina Institute, World Wild Fund, Canada et al. So serves about another 10 or 11 um, groups. And it says here that in 2014, we planned and facilitated the Toronto Skills Building Workshop, Campaigns and Communications 2014, where directors from Canada's 12 leading environmental organizations learned from leading market researchers, journalists, and organizers, and agreed to work on shared frames and messages in advance of the 2015 federal election. So I would say that there is no group in Canada, no political organization, not CAP, not any of these small groups like uh, Alberta Proud or Canada Action Group or any of these, they, none of them have this kind of clout. And none of them probably ever will. But this is uh, framing all of the messaging in Canada. And again, because these groups have so much money, I mean, I don't know if they pay the media directly or if it's because they can buy ads in quantity. I, I have no idea. But they have a lot of money and influence and they have lots of followers. So, you know, that's power to media outlets as well. Now, there's a fellow named Parker Gallant, who's a retired former international banker. And uh, he's done a lot of research on following the money and following the networks of these groups. So you should really read his uh, stuff. It's fantastic. But he tracked down the Strathmere group. And this is an excerpt of his, uh, one of his, uh, part one of his uh, Strathmere group. He's got about nine or 10 of them <laughs> just on the Strathmere group. So he looks for the full description of the Strathmere group and on the McConnell Foundation site, it identifies them as Pembina, World Wild Fund, Ecojustice, Nature Canada, Sierra Club, Pollution Probe, Greenpeace, Environmental Defense, Equiterra, David Suzuki Foundation, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. Um, this little asterisk, I believe, represents the fact that this group left and um, another group called CANRAC is now part of it, as I understand. CANRAC is uh, an umbrella organization of a hundred more ENGOs and unions. So anyhow, those on the opposing side of eco-charities and Greenpeace might wonder what is 
the Strathmere Group about and what are the initiatives that they plan to develop. Trying to find specific information on the group is difficult beyond what the McConnell Foundation has under their grant message. But they note that the 11 member organizations have over 358,000 members, 420 staff, and annual budgets totaling over $50 million. Yeah. So then let's go back to the Tar Sands campaign. Many of the groups I just mentioned were part of it or are part of it. And you can see here from the Oak Foundation, which is an organization out of Switzerland, um, they were funding the Tar Sands campaign right there in their headline. And this is to Forest Ethics, which is where Sipi Sapor Berman was working. And they are getting uh, 300,000 uh, US dollars for the Tar Sands campaign there. And here's an affidavit from a fellow named Andrew Frank. And he swears that the Forest Ethics Tar Sands campaign is a charitable project of Tides Canada. And yeah. that he's technically employed by Tides. Now, this came out in 2012. This was about the time that um, under the Harper government, the audits were started of charitable organizations. Um, so just a little evidence there. Now, before the Alberta inquiry was ever established or before there was ever any talk of it, um, we took it upon ourselves at Friends of Science Society to uh, do some research because we realized that the climate story was always attached to these organizations, these environmental groups, and they seem to have an awful lot of money. So we thought, well, let's look into it. So I guess in a way we were following on the trail of Vivian Krauss, who's done such a fantastic job, but we actually never used any of her information. We sourced our own information from their annual reports, from the CRA, from the IRS, with a couple of researchers helping Robert Lyman, and we put together these four short reports, Money Matters, Dark Green Money, Big Green Money, and The Green Titanic. So I don't know how we're doing time-wise. Are we doing okay? Yeah, I guess no, we're so. doing okay. We're, we're about an hour in. Uh, okay, so this is slide 22 of 50, so I'll go a bit faster. So Money Matters deals with the kind of money that these groups have received is revenues between 2000 and 2018. Uh, so you can see this is a, an astonishing amount of money. Um, and you can see that the revenues received by ENGOs and their EnviroLaw counterparts over the period was over 18 times the revenues received by all federal political parties and over 27 times the revenues received by market-oriented institutes. And that would be like uh, Fraser Institute or Frontier Center. Um, and the revenue received by Tides organization alone is more than the combined revenues of Canada's two largest federal political parties. So that gives you a sense of the power. David Suzuki Foundation annual average revenues exceed the annual revenues of the federal NDP. Wow. Yeah. So now you know why many political parties jump on the climate bandwagon because they believe that that's where the power base is and potentially in terms of actual money, 
but specifically in terms of you know, social power. And then we look at foreign-funded ENGOs in dark green money. And a lot of this money is associated with a program called Design to Win, which was put together by the Climate Works Foundation out of the US. And this is the kind of money that Climate Works has been pumping out. Climate Works is about um, um, 13 to 15 uh, big green philanthropies, um, you know, like the Rockefeller Foundation, um, uh, some of the others that will be cited later on. Anyway, you can see that here they're putting out about $600 million a year and they're donating it to these pet projects. One of them is uh, destroying the reputation of uh, fossil fuel industry. <laughs> One is promoting renewables. Another is evaluating low carbon energy projects and technologies, promoting climate mitigation, promoting sustainable agriculture, promoting sustainable transportation and clean vehicles, uh, climate change related communication, renewable energy related communication, and natural gas fracking related, uh, also destroying that. They also fund universities, they fund academics, and they fund alternative media outlets, things like, uh, can't say for sure that they fund Grist, but you know, that type of, of paper um, or online media. And this will just give you an idea of some of the money that's being handed out. This is from uh, 2013, I believe. But you can see these are very familiar names to most of us who are associated with this kind of um, puzzle. And you can see, you know, quarter of a million dollars, uh, 150,000, these are all US dollars. Um, here, the new venture fund is getting a million bucks. Uh, let's see, Pembina Institute got 404,000 US dollars, um, on and on and on. Lots of money rolling around. That's just from one year. And that's not the full list. And then you also get to, um, oh, I really jumped ahead, sorry. And there's also this group called Dismog Block. They do reveal their funding, um, and uh, their funding is, again, lots of it from offshore, Oak Foundation, Wilberforce, uh, Salal. So uh, their founder is James Hogan. He's an Al Gore acolyte, and he helped establish the Suzuki Fund Business Council on Sustainability, and he was chair of the Suzuki Foundation and He's also quite famous for calling people like us deniers. So just imagine that you have these very powerful ENGOs who all believe that we, people like Friends of Science and myself, are deniers. So anyone who questions the climate catastrophe theme, anyone who stands up for energy, they're deniers. Uh, and those influential people are tightly associated with the media. And this fellow also runs a very big PR firm. So you can imagine that he's quite influential because he also has other clients. This is quite um, the web. It's a huge web. Yeah, and I'm kind of just doing the surface job here. Anyway, so then let's have a look at big green money versus conventional energy ad advocates. So these are Canadian uh, legal groups, enviro legal groups, and this is the kind of money that they've gotten from outside of Canada. 
you can see that it's also millions of dollars. Um, and a lot of those groups, of course, have taken energy projects to court a few times. And you donate time and time again, because not only do these tax-funded charities, charities um, live off your taxes, uh, they also get money directly from the government. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, so, uh, for instance, in uh, 2017, 2018, Environment and Climate Change Canada gave uh, $23.1 million to Nature Conservancy and $6.1 million to Ducks Unlimited. And if you go back and look at the list, Ducks Unlimited is one of the richest ENGOs out there. The last thing they need is another $6 million of our money. And why would we give $23 million to Nature Conservancy? Why would the government do that? And likewise, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these little kind of grants and consulting programs that all the ENGOs have gotten. Here's a David Suzuki fund run for $149,793. And this was to develop and improve the use of innovative alternatives to hard infrastructure for protection of Canada's coasts. So that's for sea level rise, right? But curiously, West Coast Environmental Law's Jessica Cloak claimed that their group had received a TIDES grant for this very purpose. <laughs> now, I'd say neither of these groups are experts in that area. I don't know why they would be funded for it at all. And you can see the revenues received by the 18 largest ENGOs are listed here. And as Robert Lyman wrote, you know, the average Canadian is accustomed to thinking of environmental organizations as small and constantly searching for funds to meet a meager and parochial agenda. And they might be surprised to learn that since 2000, the top 18 have had revenues of almost $6.8 billion with Canada-wide reach and thousands of staff and consultants. It's a big business. It's a huge business. It's a gravy train. And the ENGO lobbying galore, yes. So this is from the lobby registry. <coughs> so, you know, you always hear them yapping about big oil lobbying, you know, how big bad oil is in there lobbying. Well, every business, every industry has a right to lobby for what they think is suitable for their industry. But at, that, at the time that this was written in 2019, Robert Lyman found that over the past 12 months, CAP had 12 registered lobbyists and conducted 125 lobbying efforts. But you will find that the lobbying by the petroleum industry is more than matched by the lobbying done by ENGOs. Over the past 12 months at that time, the ENGOs listed in Table 1 had 95 registered lobbyists and conducted 250 lobbying efforts. And the other thing, if you look at the lobbying registry, You'll, you'll find they're not just lobbying environment and climate change Canada. Oh, no, they're in the forestry, they're in the minerals, they're in the Aboriginal affairs, they're in Health Canada, they're, they're you know, they're scattered throughout every uh, uh, department in the government uh, because they add climate change to everything, right? because it's a great way to generate grants and consulting fees for one thing. And it's also a great way to lock in the whole climate narrative. Whereas an oil can company can't do that. You know, it would be difficult to show up at Health Canada and go, hi, 
we think that we should have more oil and gas. I mean, they'd throw you out probably, right? Uh, but of course, you can't have modern medicine without oil, gas, and coal. You just can't. Anyway, so more from big green money. It's your money. And Robert Lyman shows this huge amount of money that's being transferred from the Low Carbon Economy Leadership Fund, $1.4 billion to provinces and territories. But only if they've adopted the pan-Canadian framework, right? Only if you play along do you get access to this money. So as a province, you have to play ball or you get left out and financially screwed. And then you have all these activists and citizens going, hey, we want electric cars. Why didn't you apply for that money? So they, they take our money and tell us they'll give it back to us if we uh, subscribe to their ideas. That's it. It's extortion climate extortion. And so this is from a presentation I did for Freedom Talk a couple of years ago, but um, uh, it's taxpayers adrift. We are facing a green Titanic. So federal and provincial governments now provide $170 billion per year in grants and contributions to registered charities. Charities then raise an additional $80 billion a year based on private contributions. And the cost to the federal treasury alone of this is $5 billion a year, because that means the money that normally would go to the treasury is actually receipted, you know, so people don't have to pay that from their taxes, right? So that means that $5 billion is not there for the military. It's not there for health care. And now charities have the freedom to spend up to 100% of their revenues on political activities. Because in 2019, the law was changed in Canada. So when, when they tell us that they, they have caps on uh, contributions to political parties and corporations can't, can't uh, fund political parties anymore, all of a sudden that becomes less relevant when you put that in perspective with what you just said. Mm -hmm. And you can push a political party uh, indirectly. Like in, I think it was in 2015, <clears throat> the ENGOs got together and they came up with a chart of uh, climate action. And then they had the list of the parties down, no, they had the list of the parties down the side. Yeah. And then they had the initiatives that they wanted people to do. Like, were you going to put up wind farms? Were you going to put up EV, uh, EV chargers, blah, blah, blah. And then they would block in the... Um, the answers with logos of the parties. So all parties were represented so they could say, hey, it wasn't partisan, but guess how it was, how it appeared. It was very partisan, right? And if you have all those followers and employees, as I just showed you, then of course you're gonna sway the vote in a very powerful way. And especially if you have the media on your side, which I just showed you they do. So, so is, it, is it reasonable to say that in a combination of our media in Canada and these organizations, foreign funded organizations that have a bone to pick with Alberta specifically, had enough power, resources and money to uh, change the outcome of our election here in Canada. Yeah, I, I would say, of course, we just have to go back and look at that slide about the um, Strathmere group where they actively set strategy with the media, with media influences, influencers. And we can see that in 2015, for six months, the um, Toronto Star uh, did a joint project with Tides, and Tides paid for editorial 
um, work. And this was in the lead up to the this was in the lead up to the Paris Agreement. And almost all of the pieces that I saw were snidely condemnatory of the oil sands and really, you know, pushing big green. Mm. Um, and since that time, of course, now we know that the federal government funds the media heavily. So, you know, they're not objective. And, and we know from our own experience, like once or twice when we've run advertising, our, our media providers will get inundated with phone calls. Uh, one time we ran a billboard campaign and the Sierra Club ignited a point and click campaign attacking our media provider. And they were getting hundreds of calls and emails every day. Uh, you know, so we wrote a letter of complaint to the CRA and said, hey, you know, this isn't cool. This is supposedly a charity and they're attacking a legal business. Uh, so you should delist them. Now, I, they, they seem to have stopped their activity, but of course the people, the citizens were already engaged in that. Uh, so, you know, this is like really dirty pool um, because it's fair game in, in a democracy to have a different opinion, but I don't think it's fair game to intimidate and extort legal businesses to do something one way or another just because you don't like it. Uh, you know, you should be able to stand outside with your sign, but you shouldn't be able to harass and waste their time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and now these uh, environmental groups have won the right to use 100% of their funds uh, in political activity. It used to be 10%, and even 10% would be something like $25 billion. But now they can use 100% of their funding. And uh, this is from Mark Bloomberg, who runs Charity Law. He's an expert in charity law, and he found this pretty creepy. Um, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing because I think we'll go a bit too long, but you could read it after I will post this on my blog. And then we have this report, Manufacturing a Climate Crisis. This is mostly about um, West Coast environmental law. And this is probably a very significant tweet from the now Prime Minister. And what's significant about it is that um, the Oak Foundation is one of the Climate Works partners. That's I've shown you both those things before. And in the Oak Foundation grant database that is posted online in the public domain, in 2010, they show a grant to West Coast Environmental Law for $97,131 with the stated purpose to constrain development of the Alberta tar sands through a legislative ban on crude oil tankers in British Columbia's north coast. This would necessitate the cancellation of the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline to transport tar sands, oil, and bitumen to Asian markets. So that actually sounds like intentional market interference. Then the grant description goes on to read, West Coast environmental law aims to establish the conditions under which A, opposition parties holding a parliamentary majority work together to enact a legislative tanker ban under a minority government and or incorporate a banned promise in their manifestos, committing them to act following an election that produces a majority government and B, First Nations declare their own bans on transportation of tar sands crude oil through their territories and waters. Well, guess what happened? That's uh, Bill C-49, the tanker ban. Mm -hmm. 
Um, anyway, Friends of Science has also done a very comprehensive report, which is called Fear and Loathing, um, the Alberta Oil Sands from National Pride to International Pariah. I hope that people will read it. And uh, we also did a rebuttal report to Environmental Defense. Environmental Defense came out with a report um, probably two years ago. And they claimed that uh, they were just protesting and that all these claims that there was a tar sands campaign was like, no, it's just normal that people protest. What are you talking about? And so we went through the history of the tar sands campaign and we compiled it in this little report. And, uh, you know, people will have forgotten probably, but when it all began, um, these kind of ads were running all over the U.S. So just imagine seeing that, right? Most people that I talk to today don't, don't remember that at all. But when I first saw it, I thought, I, you know, I was shocked. And also, um, as part of the Alberta inquiry, there was a forensic audit by Deloitte. And uh, a lot of the work that the Alberta inquiry did is kind of, it either looks corny to people because the report has uh, cut and paste images of Google screenshots, um, which I think was actually a good idea because not everybody's going to go and look at the link. Uh, but some people, especially in the ENGO community, said, oh, pff, you know, it looks ridiculous. Uh, but you can't really ignore the Deloitte report. It's a forensic audit report. But again, rather difficult for ordinary people to read. So Robert Lyman did a summary that's on our blog. It's called, Has No One Read the Deloitte Report? And this just summarizes some key points here. Foreign funding directed to Alberta resource development opposition ranges between 37.5 million and 58.9 million over the period of 2003 to 2019. Now, the Alberta inquiry was focused strictly on things happening in Alberta with Alberta companies, right? But we know there were millions of dollars more, say, being dumped into Quebec. That's in the report I just showed you, the fear and loathing report. And not just Quebec, but into other provinces as well. So, um, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg, if you like. And they also found that governments are the largest funders of registered charities. And I think they're talking all charities here. Um, and it's billions of dollars. And then let's look here. Over the period of review, foreign foundations provided grants totaling $788.1 billion to Canadian ENGOs. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Pew Charitable Trusts, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation provided about 71% of the total. The names of the 31 largest ENGOs ranked by revenues were mostly redacted from the Deloitte report. Over the period under review, those 31 ENGOs accumulated over 2.5 billion in assets, received 897.5 million in foreign funding, and received 2.1 billion in government funding. And environmental law organizations, as a separate group, accumulated almost 11 million in assets, had foreign funding of 21.5 million, and received 7.8 million in government funding. That's quite the wealth transfer. Yeah, it is. So how about some climate money, anyone? How did the carbon tax and dividend come into being? 
well back in 2005 about when I was working for Alberta Environment, the Oak Foundation gave um, the Sierra Club, which at that time was under Elizabeth May, $217,893 US to provide the overall coordination of Canadian NGOs working on climate change and to have greenhouse gas emissions classified as pollutants under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. So that's foreign interference right there. And to create and fund and administer a climate change action fund. So I don't know if they came up with that fund, but this is where the carbon tax began. And if we want to talk about the freedom convoy and foreign interference and foreign money, then why shouldn't the same principles apply here? And here's some more foreign interference. James Hansen, climate scientist, right? Well, he's been working with Citizens Climate Lobby in Canada, and he's been pushing petitions in Canada. Here, he is pushing for a rising carbon fee collected from fossil fuel companies, which would be distributed uniformly to the nation's citizens. And this money must be given to the public openly as a bank deposit, debit card deposit or check, and not hidden in some complex calculation. So he's been pushing for a $210 a ton carbon tax in Canada. And there's actually a petition in the government for such a tax. This is James Hansen, climate scientist. And Citizens Climate Lobby, who are they? Well, here's Kathy Orlando. And here's Al Gore. And here is her daughter, Sophia, who's now suing the Ontario government with eco-justice um, on the kids' climate court case. And we have a four-part series on YouTube and also on our blog with the PowerPoints following that line. And what's so relevant about Citizens Climate Lobby? Well, they're associated with We Don't Have Time out of Sweden, which is a group of carbon trading kings. And Kathy Orlando sits on the board of the We Don't Have Time Foundation with none other than Greta Thunberg. So um, years ago, Matthew Nisbet, who is a communications analyst and researcher in the States, uh, did a work called uh, Climate Shift, I believe it was. And this is from that. And he talks about how in 2006, seven several of the world's wealthiest foundations hired a consulting firm that was McKinsey to comprehensively survey available scientific literature and consult with more than 150 leading climate change and energy experts. And they came up with Design to Win. And the whole thesis of Design to Win was that they would fund uh, environmental groups around the world to uh, agitate as if there was a grassroots demand for policies that these guys wanted to see. They wanted to establish two cap and trade systems worldwide. And um, they wanted to cause a sea change in the global economy. Where is that? Uh, yes, they, um, here it is. They predicted that the passage of cap and trade legislation would prompt prompt a sea change that washes over the entire global economy. And it said the report included little to no discussion of the role of government 
and philanthropies in directly sponsoring the creation of new energy technologies, the report additionally is notable for the absence of any meaningful discussion of social, political, or cultural dimensions of the challenge. And in my view, it's also absent the fact that they are subverting democracy. And uh, I'm getting near the end of the presentation, I think. So I just wanted to bring this up that uh, at the Paris Agreement in 2015, Ivo de Boer, who was the former executive secretary of the UN, um, of the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the Rio Declaration of 1992, he said that the only way that a 2015 agreement can achieve a two-degree goal is to shut down the whole global economy. And you know, lots of people think that climate lockdown is a conspiracy theory, right? Well, I say this, perhaps we already had a climate lockdown. I mean, when you read this, doesn't this sound like what we just went through? This is also from Matthew Nisbet's work, and he's talking about Bill McGibbon's book, The End of Nature. And Bill McGibbon's vision was that we would end our addiction to fossil fuels, dramatically reorganize society, we would end our economic growth and consumerism. And in this pastoral future, free of consumerism or material ambition, Americans would rarely travel, experience the world instead through the internet, grow much of their own food, we might have to, power their communities through solar and wind and divert their wealth to developing countries. And he thought that only under these transformational conditions, argued McGibbon, would we be able to set a moral example for countries like China <laughs> to change course, all in the hope that these countries will accept a grand bargain toward a cleaner energy path. No, they would laugh at us and burn more coal. Right, of course. Well, they laugh at us and walk in and take the resources. So, and of course, the other ironic thing of the whole climate movement and all these environmental groups who are like, bad oil, keep it in the ground, get off the addiction, just stop oil. Well, you can't make a wind turbine without it. And you can't power it on the grid either. You need natural gas to back it up. So it's actually, um, I call it, uh, you know, climate mass psychosis. Because people have lost their reason. You can't reason with them anymore. Any rational person looking at this, especially here, this graph from BP, you would see that if this little orange strip is renewables in the world, then it's not ever going to be replacing this, which is coal, um, oil, and gas, right? That's ludicrous to even think that. And ultimately, over the years, it's become clear that carbon dioxide is not the main driver of climate change. It does have a nominal impact, but it's not the main driver. So that means that reducing carbon dioxide won't change its climate. And a carbon tax is meaningless, except that it's putting a lot of people into heat or eat poverty. So that pretty much wraps up um, my presentation. Uh, this is not an entire Friends of Science presentation because a lot of the presentation was related to my research and my opinions, uh, but I do want to bring it to your attention that we're in our 20th year. We provide all our information for free. If we could get a $20 donation, that would be very helpful. 
you can do that on our website or you can just send um, an e-transfer to contact at friendsofscience.org. And uh, also, if you'd like to get my little ebook, that would be grand. Um, and you can help me out too if you want to. But uh, Or you can read my pieces on my blog. So I really enjoyed giving the presentation. I thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope people learned a lot and I'd be happy to talk about this or any part of this in more detail at any other event as well. So thanks very much for joining me and all the best. That was, uh, that was awesome. Th thank you very much for that. I'm going to go out on a limb again here and I'm going to say this has probably been a lot of work for you. Uh, yeah. Although I've been doing it now for 11 years. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Well, we certainly appreciate it. So I would ask uh, you. you're watching and, and you're, you're appreciative of the efforts that um, Michelle's put in to kind of getting it out there, getting the truth about Alberta's energy industry, about our oil sands, the whole nine yards. She's getting the truth out there. Uh, why don't you just throw her a few bucks, uh, make a donation to Friends of Science, help keep that stuff going because it's critically important. Um, prosperity in this province is heavily based on energy. And you could easily argue that prosperity across the globe is centered around energy. Yes. So if we want to be prosperous in this province, if we want to be prosperous as a, as a, as humankind, um, we need to start seeking out the truth about what sustains us. And that's our energy. And we have to stop allowing these groups who quite obviously benefit financially huge from the lies they're telling we need to put a stop to this. We need to call them out for it. We need to put pressure on our politicians so that they stop allowing this to happen. When they make deals with these organizations, we need to call them out for it. We need to use our voices and our votes to change the courts we're on. Because as far as I can tell, this is not sustainable. Taking all of our money and giving it to these groups who, who push propaganda and lies on us, that's not sustainable. And we, we need to get back to reality here. Another yeah, and, way, and they're, they're not just pushing propaganda and lies. They're pushing uh, forms of energy and, and uh, initiatives that also drain more money from our pockets. So, yeah. you know, it's this vicious circle. And, and then they get more funding from government to do more of it. So it, it's really astonishing. They sway the course of an election in our country. And yeah. very likely destroyed our prosperity for a period of time. And then the government that they support rewards them handsomely by giving them our money. That's how absolutely sick this is. Yeah. And we, we, we got to start calling this out because I, I don't, with, with the amount of money, those, the numbers that I saw on those pages, I don't think they're going to stop on their own accord because it's the right thing to do because that's a lot of money. They have billions and billions of reasons why they would continue to do this. Um, the subject very is very important to me. Energy, the energy industry, it's kind of in my blood. It's been a huge part of my life. And uh, I hope that through these forums that it gives you kind of a, a better understanding of where I'm coming from and where we're at in Alberta. Yeah, I wanted to mention one more thing. Uh, Robert Lyman is... Um... 27-year veteran of the Federal Public Service, and he also is was a diplomat for 10 years. And he's got another post on our blog uh, where he points out 
it was written last October, I think, he pointed out that at world market prices then, uh, we have $21 trillion U.S. gross value in resources uh, sitting in Canada, most of it in Alberta, $21 trillion. That's a lot of zeros. Yeah, and uh, net, he figured the net value would be about $13 trillion, which is still lots. Anyway, so we could pay off the entire uh, national debt 13 times. You know, we could give every Canadian $350,000. You know, it would just completely turn our lives around if we could get the green uh, uh, ticks off our back. <laughs> and those numbers, that's at kind of current market prices at current technology levels as well. Yeah. yeah. So that's another thing that like people have this idea that that our hydrocarbons and energy in Alberta is a fossil fuel, meaning it's you know, it's very old, it's very rare, we might not get any more. But the truth is, in the 20 plus years that I've been in the energy industry, I've watched technology like advance leaps and bounds to yeah. the point where we, we, at this point, we won't run out of oil for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. So it's something we should definitely be exploring. I got a question yeah, for we're you. We're not like in that Beverly Hillbillies where, you know, the first oil you get is because you shoot your rifle into the ground and oh my gosh look we got a gusher i mean now we've got all kinds of really great technology and wonderful geoscientists who can figure out where the the resources are so absolutely it's incredible so i have a question for you what are you doing on friday are you busy on friday uh this friday yes uh i i what would you like me to do well, uh, the Alberta Health, uh, Prosperity Project is hosting a event with Alex Epstein mm-hmm. in Calgary at the Calgary Weston, at the uh-huh. airport Weston. And uh, what I've done, uh, they actually stopped selling tickets a couple of days ago because of logistics. They had to plan to have an extra people. I want more people there. So uh, the Whistle Stop Cafe, my, my business, purchased 100 tickets oh. to Alex Epstein on Friday because I believe in Alberta Energy. I believe that we produce the most ethical energy in the world, and I want people to hear what folks like you and Alex have to say about our energy so that we have the tools and the knowledge so we can start speaking out against this. So, um, you know, we, we would love to see everybody there. If you haven't got tickets yet and you want to get some tickets, I still have a few left. You can find them at www.whistlestoptruckstop.org in our online shop. Uh, I believe Carrie okay. has even pinned it to the main page. So you can buy your tickets there. And I've okay. put on some deals. If you bring a friend, it's two. T- one ticket is fifty bucks. Two tickets. So if you bring a friend, it's eighty dollars. If you bring nine friends, ten tickets is only two hundred fifty bucks. Twenty five bucks a ticket. So fantastic. We're hoping to fill the seats. We're hoping to continue to get this information out there to seek the truth. And and uh, as we've learned over our lives, the truth does set you free, and it will set us free as a province and as individuals. So. Yes. That's what's going on on Friday. Great, great. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, and if you, a... if you can make it, uh, I got a ticket waiting for you. Okay. Thank you. That's You're wonderful. And I see there's a couple questions. Okay. Uh, oh, yes. So there's a comment about Patrick Moore and his, you know, talking about these things. Uh, Patrick Moore was one, one of the original founders of Greenpeace. Yes. And, um, you know, he originally, I, I think Greenpeace originally may have had a, 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 some good intentions. They wanted to deal with some we did have. big problems, right? But since then, it's turned into something different. Like you mentioned before, they have to find new things to fight for. You know, we cleaned up things considerably. 
We dealt with a lot of the smog issues and, and real pollution. I'm not talking about CO2. I'm talking about real pollution that harms people. And now he's, he's watched it morph into something that's not uh, virtuous, but it's nefarious business. Yeah. And he's been speaking out against it as well. Yeah, we have a few interviews with him on our website. And that was one of the interviews he did with him where he said, you know, uh, it starts off as a volunteer group, then you build it into like an organization. He said, now suddenly you have to make payroll. But he said, <clears throat> for the most part, while he was with uh, Greenpeace, they were actually doing things to, you know, save the whales, stop nuclear war. And, you know, they were doing green and peaceful things. He said, and then they wanted to ban chlorine. He's like, chlorine, that's what, that's public sanitation. You can't ban chlorine. And so that's when he was like, no, these people have now become anti-human. Yeah, they created, created a monster. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. If you look at a map of, uh, uh, of uh, Amsterdam, of the Netherlands, actually, and you look where Greenpeace headquarters are, they're within just a few miles of a number of refineries. But they never protest there, do they? Yeah, they're in their little inflatable hydrocarbon-made rafts off yeah. the west coast of uh, British Columbia trying to block tankers. I always yeah. get a kick out of that. So, so do we have more questions? Um, what else was there? So someone on here would like Premier Daniel Smith to see this um, because she is also a very strong advocate for Alberta Energy. And uh, she, you know, as far as I know, she also wants to get the truth out there so that Alberta can be the prosperous province we should be, not uh, hammered with constant lies and propaganda. Uh, yeah, something uh, else. Oh, that's sorry, great. Go ahead. Uh, that would be great if she saw it, but I, I'm sure that she is aware of it. You know, a, a lot of the people, like in the time that, I was at Alberta Environment in 2005. You know, a lot of the people in the government were either formerly in geosciences or in engineering. So you had people who had a really good grasp of some of these things, you know, and, and uh, now a lot of government departments, especially at the federal level, are filled with people who have social science backgrounds. So they don't get it, you know, they, I mean, I don't get a, a lot of it. I work with engineers and geoscientists and, you know, I'm constantly saying to them, please explain this to me uh, like an ordinary person. You know, it, it's difficult to understand, but you need someone with that level of understanding. And I think that uh, she was probably associated with people who had those skill sets. Uh, so, you know, then you realize that the, the general public because they don't understand energy, just like I didn't, you know, a few decades ago. Um, they're easily swayed by these ENGOs because, you know, as you say, this emotional appeal, uh, you know, we're, we're going to save the planet and, and you evil people are destroying it. Well, you know, when are you going to reclaim your house? You know, I like to ask people that in the city. Do you have a reclamation plan for your house? Are you going to decommission it and reclamation? reclaim it and you're like what i go your place is built on a wetland yeah. <laughs> and they're like no i live in the city <laughs> it's like well what do you think the city used to be it was a wetland you know so every development has an impact of some kind but we have 
uh, very good environmental laws, especially in Alberta, but generally in Canada. So, you know, we need to now address these energy issues. And there's going to be an energy crisis worldwide for at least the next decade. Uh, and it will be more or less severe depending on what happens with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. So, um, you know, it could get much worse, but Europe will be decimated. Like, you know, people don't realize that Europe was buying about $600 billion worth of fossil fuels every year uh, because they literally have no fossil fuels there other than shale gas, which the environmentalists have convinced them not to use. So, um, you know, big factories there, like uh, ArcelorMittal, they're one of their steel plants. They shut that down. There's a big uh, 10 square kilometer chemical factory in Germany called um, Ludwigshafen. It's part of the BASF group. They need natural gas to make all the products that they make there because it's a chemical factory and they need it to power their industrial process. So Germany came to Canada asking for LNG and Canada said, well, send you some hydrogen. <laughs> anyway, BASF may have to close that plant. It's 10 square kilometers. It employs 30,000 people. You know, those people, just like with the oil sands, you close that down, those people will find other opportunities. Somewhere, they'll move to another country. How many wonderful people who worked in the oil sands have moved to other countries in the world to make a living. And we've lost all that technology and experience and wisdom that was built here. This may be a situation where you can only, you can only ignore reality for so long. Uh, my friend Tanner describes it kind of, it's akin to walking through the forest and holding a branch back, you know, but you can only hold it so long. Eventually reality is going to swing back and it's going to smack you in the face. And now Europe is faced with this problem. Right? They've been they've been pursuing this ideological fallacy, this green this green fallacy for for so long. It's about to slap them in the face. And same with the United States. Actually, the United States, uh, Mexico is poised to uh, stop exporting oil and gas next year. That's an eight hundred thousand barrel per day deficit. The the United States is going to have overnight. Now, yeah. reality is about to start rearing its ugly head and Canada you know an, an, an ethical producer of energy of hydrocarbons um, a technological innovator one, one of the the leading jurisdictions in the world for de, for responsible development we're, we're extremely responsible stewards of our resource Canada we are poised to become global leaders and I'm not talking about WF global leaders I'm talking about real global leaders who will lead by example, and we can supply and meet the world's energy needs. So this conversation becomes even more important because it, as far as I've seen in, in, in my lifetime, um, when you see your friends and neighbors about to be smacked smack with reality, you should probably prepare to do what you have to do to help them. And, and that's what we're at, where we're at right now. Right. And, and the other thing, you know, I think, Canadians are geopolitically unaware. And I have to say, I was until I read Samuel Ferfari's books. Um, and I think I have one here. Uh, yes. Till I read 
it's, it's a two-part series, like a really big tome. That's a big book. <laughs> it's a big book, and there's two of them. But it's all about the geopolitical development of energy worldwide. And as I was reading it, you know, I was reading about all these LNG ports being built and all these pipelines being built, and I'm going like, what? Like, how is this going on in other places in the world and not going on here? And then I realized, wait, we are a global competitor. So anytime any country or any company that's a competitor to Canada can keep our product off world markets, it's a win for them. You yes. know, and so we have to stop looking at this like, oh, we're saving the planet here because we're only like 1.6% of global emissions in total from Canada. In China, in one month, they emit more than Canada emits in a year and a half. So all these climate measures uh, will, in Canada won't ever do a thing. But the limiting of Canadian product to the world is creating part of this energy crisis. And as you say, we're a big part of that solution. Well, that will do one thing. It will uh, redistribute our wealth to developing nations. Well, yeah, there it was right there at the end of Bill McGibbon's uh, statement, right? So all these things are coming to pass, but we just never connected the dots. We have a lot of work to do, but fortunately, people are, I think they're starting to pay attention a lot more than they used to be. They're less apathetic when it comes to political and social issues. And we have an opportunity to change things, to chart a new course for Alberta. Yes. And that's why I'm, I'm with the Alberta Prosperity Project, because I want to see that happen. I, I want Great. this province to be, I want this province to be a leader in, in, in prosperity and freedom. And if we keep having conversations like this, I think we're going to get there. So Agreed. with that, I will say thank you very much for taking all this time to spend with us. And if you don't mind, just one more time, um, just can you just repeat how, if people want to um, support you or find your products or website, whatever, um, where, can, where can we find you and how can we help? Uh, okay, well, you can find my blog at michellesterling.com and my last name is spelled S-T-I-R, like the castle in Scotland, not like the British pound. Um, and uh, you can support me with the same name, sterling, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G-M-G at yahoo.com. Um, and you can also help Friends of Science. Uh, E-transfers can go to contact at friendsofscience.com or .org. Um, or you can go onto our website and uh, donate or join us, become a member. And uh, then you get our newsletters and everything. So anyway, I thank you so much. That's a great idea. And I think I used to be a member and I probably I should renew my membership tonight. And also, uh, please, if you want to continue this conversation and and attend our Alberta Prosperity Project hosted Alex Epstein event, uh, head over to www.whistlestoptruckstop.ca. You can find the link to purchase tickets right on the webpage or the, for the homepage. And I said it before, I'll say it again. If you want to attend this event, but you can't afford the ticket, I will buy your ticket. Send me a personal message and I will uh, send you a coupon code so that you can get your ticket for free. Because for me, uh, your prosperity, my prosperity, and the prosperity of this province is of paramount importance and uh, we want you there to, to, to hear what Alex has to say and to arm yourself with knowledge because knowledge is power and we're about to take the power back in this province. So with that, I'll say thank you very much. Have a great night and I hope to see you on, uh, on Friday. 
Okay, thanks so much. Good night, yeah, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Okay.